Thanks, Pete. Uh, good morning, everybody. It was fun having coffee with Pete a couple of weeks ago. Uh, it was good to have him out at the station, and uh, I am really grateful that I was invited out here this morning to help end this whole series about going through the desert. Uh, it's been a, a long trek for us uh, to follow this through, but not nearly as long as it was for the Israelites. And uh, we'll get into a little bit of the history here, but more about the fact that their trek through the desert has more to do with us than I think we realize. And it ends in a way where communion is really an appropriate ending to the whole desert series. Um, there are, you will find connections between the Israelites and your life. Uh, there are times in all of our lives when we feel like it's a desert, isn't it? Uh, there are times when we go through our own manner of suffering and our own trials and our own difficulties, and it's very easy to relate to some of the Old Testament characters and some of the things they went to. I know not all the time is it easy to do that, but in this case, it most definitely is. Uh, we're coming to a point where the Israelites are coming out of captivity. And we think of this story of going through the desert, the 40 years of wandering, so to speak, as being the really tough time. But in fact, I think the time prior to that was even tougher because they were worked to death. They were beaten, they were starved, they were killed for years before they finally got their freedom and were allowed to actually enter the promised land. Well, after years of all of this abuse, Enter a guy by the name of Moses. Times are tough, and Moses' mom knows she can't raise him, so she nestles him in a basket and pushes him out into the river. And he floats downstream, and he gets recovered by Pharaoh's family, and he's raised in Pharaoh's household. And all this time, he gets to watch all of the abuse that the Israelites have been going through. All the beatings, the people that die in the field, uh, just the abuse that they have to go through day after day after day. And then he learns about his own nationality, that he indeed is a Hebrew. And he starts to take this at heart. He has a new sympathy for the people that are being abused while in captivity. He goes to Pharaoh and he explains the situation. He said, these are my people and they're being very harshly treated. How about you just let them go home? Turn them free. And no, uh, Pharaoh thinks about it for a second and he says, mm, no, I don't think so. And Moses says, oh, okay, fine. Uh, Cue the frogs. And there's a plague comes through, and Pharaoh says, eh, this is uncomfortable. Yeah, okay, you can go. The frogs disappear. Pharaoh has a change of heart. Nah, I think you'll stay. Moses said, okay, cue the bugs. And it gets a swarm of locusts that eat everything. Pharaoh says, enough, you can go. 
the locusts are gone, he says, no, I think you'll stay. Okay, bloody water, that's what you get this time. And Pharaoh says, this stinks, it is horrible, we have nothing, go ahead, take your people and go. Fresh water returns and Pharaoh has another change of heart. No, I think you'll stay. And then Moses pulls out the big guns. And you can read about this in Exodus chapter 12. This is actually where the whole business gets started. After all of these plagues have hit Egypt, at midnight the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night and there was loud wailing in Egypt for there was not a single house without someone dead. Moses calls out the big guns. He goes to his own people first And he said, I want you to slaughter a lamb and put the blood on the doorposts and the lentils of your home. And no matter what you hear, do not leave your house. Stay inside, for the angel of death is going to sweep through the city and kill the firstborn male of every family. And if you're caught outside, you and you're not under the protection of the blood of the lamb, you will be killed. And the first time I read that, it kind of sent shivers down my spine because I'm the firstborn male in my family. How many of you are the firstborn male in your family? Look at this. We'd lose half the guys in the audience here this morning. Firstborn, everybody's dead. During the night, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Get up, leave my people, you and the Israelites, go worship the Lord as you have requested. Take your flocks, take your herds, as you've said, and go and, oh yeah, before you leave, bless me. The Egyptians urged the people to hurry and leave the country, for otherwise, they said, we'll all die. So the people took their dough before the, ye- before the yeast was added and carried it on their shoulders in kneading troughs wrapped in clothing. They didn't even have time to make bread before they hit the road. Pharaoh ran them out. The Israelites did as Moses instructed and asked the Egyptians for articles of silver and gold for clothing. This part, to me, is amazing. It just shows how badly... Finally, Pharaoh and the Egyptians wanted these people out of here. The Lord, made, the Lord had made the Egyptians favorably disposed toward the people, and they gave them whatever they asked for. Okay, we've had frogs and locusts and bloody water, and now all of our firstborn are dead. Yeah, you can leave and do it quickly. So they plundered the Egyptians. The Israelites took everything, took clothing, took gold, took food, took everything they had. The Israelites journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, and there were about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. Ladies, I'm sorry. It was a cultural thing back then. Uh, They counted the men. Now, there's 600,000 men. Now, you add the women and children to that and... 
Some of the other things that they took from the Egyptians, many other people went up with them as well as, a, as large droves of livestock, both flocks and herds. They had servants, other slaves, all of their cattle, everything went with the Israelites. So 600,000 men plus women plus children plus servants and slaves, and now we're talking over a million people are headed for this camp out. And they hit the road just grabbing whatever they could to get on the way. Verse 31. Excuse me. Many other people went up with them. And uh, with the dough they had brought from Egypt, they baked cakes of unleavened bread. The dough was without yeast because they'd been driven out of Egypt and did not have time to prepare food for themselves. Now, the length of time the Israelite people lived in Egypt was 430 years. They had lived under the heel of Egyptian captors for 430 years. And this night, they began their journey out. I have a map that I want to show you here this morning and see if we can call this up. Now, this is one of those, gosh, I wish that were bigger so I could actually see it, maps. Uh, but I did, Kip was kind enough to uh, break it down into two parts. And if we can take that first part, there we go. Their trip actually begins right up here in the delta of the Nile River, a city called Ramses. And they begin the trek south. And they stop in the first city they come to called Succoth. And that's where their first camp is uh, when they leave. And then they move south from there. Uh, I'm thinking, I had, to, I had to try to imagine to myself, okay, I've got a million people on the road, and we had to blaze out of there, barely being able to carry any, get a hand on whatever we could and take it with us, grab some food, grab a change of clothes, and you're down the road with a million of your best friends, and we hit that first camp. And I'm wondering, what was the atmosphere like that night in that camp in Succoth? 430 years they had been in captivity. You know, there were whole generations that were born and lived and died in captivity. That knew nothing but slavery. That knew nothing but starvation and hardship and rough times. And now they're finally given their freedom. Can you imagine Succoth that night? What a party. I'm saying a million people, all par- it had to sound like Woodstock. And I can hear Richie, Fre- Richie Havens, freedom, freedom. I can hear the whole concert going. What a party it would have been that night. Now, they're carrying the bones of Joseph with them. And in uh, Exodus 13, it says they aren't just kind of meandering around. Uh, It's called the wandering in the wilderness, but they're actually being led by the Lord himself. And it's manifested in the form of a pillar of smoke by day and a pillar of fire by night. Now, part of the hardship here is uh, you didn't know when that pillar was going to stop. 
So you could just walk all day with that pillar and the Ark of the Covenant out in front of you. Might walk all night. It said at night it uh, turned to a pillar of fire so that they could see. And when the pillar stopped, that's when you stopped. Well, the first stop was in Succoth. And from there, they continue to move south until right about here at the north end of the west arm of the Red Sea. Uh, that's where they make their crossing. So they make, make their way south. Now, the exact point of the crossing of the Red Sea isn't really known, but it's, uh, it, known, it is known that it would have to be a little farther north on that west arm of the Red Sea, simply because they travel across the other side and their cities that they hit on the other side going down the Sinai Peninsula. Well, about the time they get here, Pharaoh realizes that he's probably made a poor choice. Everybody that ever built anything for us, that grew our crops, that cooked our food, that cleaned our homes, did every menial task that we would ever hope to do, is gone. We have to do all this work ourselves. Pharaoh said, I probably made a fairly poor choice. So he mounts up with all his charioteers and his whole army and sets out in pursuit of them just as they're about to cross the Red Sea and catches up with them just as they're making, as Charlton Heston is making the way across on dry ground. We all know what happens from there. Pharaoh and his troops are caught as the Red Sea closes in on them, and they continue their trek south. Now, I've got another uh, piece of the map here that takes us farther south. So they travel down the eastern side of the Sinai Peninsula, and they get through cities called Mara and Elim, and it's right about in here that supplies begin to run short. Uh, now, you can imagine, you know, when you and I go camping, uh, we think, okay, I'm going to be gone for three days, and uh, that means I need this many meals and this much food and I'm going to have so many snacks and if I'm dry camping, I'm going to need X number of jugs of water and we kind of plan this out. They had no time for planning. It's grab what you can and go. And about the time they get down here is when they get introduced to manna. Now, manna, as you may recall, is that bread-like substance that would fall like dew on the ground overnight. And uh, they would go out in the morning with baskets and gather enough for that day. If they tried to gather enough for the next day, it would just rot on them overnight. So they'd go out and gather manna. And none of us have ever had manna. The nearest explanation I've heard anybody try to make to this is a, a sweetbread, something along the line of baklava, which I'm thinking isn't a bad breakfast, actually. Uh, and then they also got introduced to quail. And they get got to deliver quail to them, and they would have barbecue every night. So baklava for breakfast and barbecue in the evening. And that's not a bad menu. Uh, but they get cranky with this, and they're starting to already get crabby with Moses, who's leading them through the promised land. And they're saying, you know, you led us all the way out here into this wilderness. Look at what we had when we were back in Egypt. Is it amazing how selective our memory is? They said, 
If we were back in, this was the line that killed me. If we were back in Egypt, we could eat onions. What? Do you realize what you're saying? Take me back to the land of beating and death and, uh, and abject poverty and abuse so I can eat onions. The misery of our own personal immediate situation somehow always looks worse than where we were. And there's a temptation to go back and Moses has to keep reminding them we have a promise. That pillar of smoke that we're following is going to take us to the promised land. We've heard about this for centuries from our ancestors. And today we get to get one step further toward that. So the journey continues. They travel south around the around through the Sinai, excuse me, through the Sinai Peninsula down to Mount Sinai, which is toward the southern end of the peninsula. And we know what happened there. Moses gets the law delivered to him. Uh, the folks are upset because he's gone so long. They make the golden calf. Pete talked about that last week. Uh, Moses comes down. He's rightfully upset with the fact that, okay, now I've got the actual law from God, and look what you guys are up to. Destroys the calf, goes back and gets a fresh set. And the trek then continues, and they start to move north along the, uh, along the eastern part of the Sinai Peninsula. And it's through here that, uh, that Miriam will die. She, she contracts leprosy, and they continue the trek north. Now, if I could get that other map back this morning, we'll get back into the northern section here. Now comes what we call the true wandering in the wilderness. They get up toward uh, Kadesh Barnea, they take a trip back out into the desert, and this is an interesting situation here. Uh, they get to a point where the supplies are gone. The food's just about gone. They have absolutely no water. And you may remember the story where uh, they're really frustrated with Moses, and he has just about had it with these cranky people. And God says, look, I know you're out of supplies. And he tells Moses to do something that sounds incredibly silly. He says, I want you to go out and speak to the rock and water will come out of it. Now, I'm trying to think of how I would have received that. Uh, granted, we've been led by the Lord and I've had communication with him and now I've got a million grouchy people that I'm having to lead and God says, I want you to go talk to a rock. Really? I've just about had it with this trip. So he goes out and he's, he's frustrated with the people. He's got to go talk to a rock. Well, instead of talking to a rock, he gives it a good crack twice with his staff. And water comes out, as the Lord promised, and uh, watered all the people and all their livestock, and they had plenty of water to continue the trip. But as a result, God tells Moses, you will never enter the promised land. And they continue their trek. Well, this wandering between Kadesh Barnea and back down toward the uh, south, toward the uh, eastern arm of the Red Sea and back up again and back down, they just kind of wander around. And we think of it as them being lost. But in fact, God's leading them this whole time with the promise, just follow me. I know we're going through some tough stuff here, but just follow me and I'll get you to the promised land. They leave 
the southern area and they head now northward. Aaron dies along the way and they get up toward the north on the eastern side of the Salt Sea and get to Mount Nebo. And at the top of Mount Nebo, Moses gets to look across the Jordan River to see the promised land. God's already told him, you're not going to make it. And Moses dies before they enter the river to cross over. Joshua is then appointed the new leader of the crew. And this is where we pick up the story of them entering the promised land. The next morning, Joshua has all the people break camp and get lined up. They're going to cross the Jordan, which, by the way, is in flood stage right now. I don't know if you've ever seen, we've had the Deschutes River at flood stage a couple of times in the 31 years that I've lived here, and it is moving fast, and it is deep, and it is extremely foreboding. Now Joshua's got them all lined up and said, yep, we're going to cross. And the lead of the attack on the river are the priests that are carrying the Ark of the Covenant. And Scripture says that as soon as the foot of the first priest touched the water, back upstream, several miles, the river just stopped and backed up. Now, there, today there's evidence up in that valley of a huge flood that had, took place uh, in ancient time. The river just stopped at flood stage, and Joshua says, okay, I want you to go down into the river, talking to the priest, carrying the Ark of the Covenant. When you get to the middle, I want you to stop and stay there until all of Israel has passed by. Well, the next people through were 40,000 armed men that got out on the other side of the river uh, just for protection, while the rest of Israel came through. Before they actually left on the trip, Joshua appointed 12 men, one from each tribe of Israel, and said, when you get to the middle of the river, I want you to pick up a stone. Now, not something that's hand size. I want something that you have to carry on your shoulder. And I want you to take that to the other side. So 12 guys pick up these big stones, and they come out on the other side, as soon as all of Israel passes, then the Ark of the Covenant and the priests come out, and as soon as the last foot of the priest is out of the water, the river resumes flood stage once again. And then the whole band of Israel then takes a turn toward the northwest. And I don't know if, I don't think our map is large enough here. You can see Jericho right through here. Just to the northeast of Jericho is a city called Gilgal. And that's where they wind up camping, their first night out, of, or first night in, rather, the promised land. They camp in a city called Gilgal. There, Joshua has a memorial set up. And if you want to turn to Joshua chapter 4, there's something very interesting that takes place here. Come on. Joshua chapter 4 and verse 19. 
On the tenth day of the first month, the people went up from the Jordan and camped at Gilgal on the eastern border of Jericho. And Joshua set up at Gilgal the twelve stones they had taken out of the Jordan. And he said to the Israelites, in the future, when your descendants ask the fathers, what do these stones mean? Tell them, Israel crossed the Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the Jordan before you until you crossed over. The Lord your God did to the Jordan just as he had done to the Red Sea when he dried it up before us until he had crossed over. He did this so that all the peoples of the earth might know that the hand of the Lord is powerful and so that you might always fear the Lord your God. He set up a memorial. He took those stones and stacked them in such a way that it would create some curiosity among people so that they would ask, what is this? And it reminds me that we collect memorials of our own, don't we? Cheryl and I had a chance to go to Montana last summer and visit friends, and while we were there, uh, we took a hike in Glacier National Park that started right at Logan Pass, the top of the Great Divide, and went, well, the first seven and a half miles went down to the chalet, and then there was another three and a half back down to where we caught the bus. And about halfway to the chalet, there's a, a rock formation they call Haystack. And when we got to Haystack, we decided it was a good place for lunch. So we stopped, and we were sitting there, and I noticed that someone had taken rocks of various sizes and shapes and stacked them in a pillar and just left them. And I found it amazing to me that nobody bothered it. Everybody left that stack. Of, have you ever seen that when somebody will balance a bunch of stones together like that? And it's just their, their way of saying, I was here. I made it. I got this far. Now, they're not there anymore, so it means they got farther. And it's interesting to me that nobody bothers them because when they look at that rock, they said, yep, yeah, me too. Now, we collect memorabilia for special moments in our lives. I have one that I've had in my pocket every single day for over 30 years. My uh, sister was married in Seattle. And when our daughters were real little, we went up for the wedding. And part of the celebration was not only her wedding, it was Father's Day weekend. So part of the, that celebration, we went up to the top of the Space Needle and had dessert in the restaurant. Beautiful day. I got the usual cards with little girl scribble in it and all of that stuff. It was great. None of that exists anymore. The only thing that's left is a leather key fob with my name on it that my daughters gave me. I've carried that every day, and when I can feel that in my pocket, I think of my girls. We all have... Things like this. My wife is absolutely wonderful about putting these together. Photo albums. They don't mean much to anybody else, but they mean a ton to us. And she has spent hours, and we have a shelf that's lined with photo albums, and I can't look at any of them. Because as soon as I, I, I cracked this one open this morning and got teary-eyed, because all I can see is a history of little girls. And I get, you need to know that I'm really a sap. <laughs> I get teary-eyed at commercials on TV. You know, Super Bowl, right? I am, I'm watching Super Bowl like a lot of you guys, so I can watch the commercials. 
And I'm used to the Doritos stuff and the truck stuff and all the lunacy with the Budweiser ads and all of the rest of that. And this year they're playing dad commercials. And I'm sitting there in tears. And the whole time I'm sitting there, I'm inside, I'm telling myself, there is no crying in the Super Bowl. <laughs> and so I'm, it's, it's terrible, I'm that way. Uh, we have a collection of coffee cups. Too many, really. But one significant portion of them is about a dozen coffee cups from cities around the world. Starbucks has this collection. Some of you guys probably have some of these. Cities we've been to, cities where our daughters live, uh, or they've been a good friend of the family, went to Argentina. We have one of these from Argentina. Have some from Hawaii when we were over in Maui. This one is from Hong Kong. And my daughter, who was a, our second daughter, who was a cheerleader for the University of Oregon, uh, traveled all over the country. And later was with a cheer group that uh, went to China. And she brought this back for me. So I get, get this out once in a while. I have tea in this in the evening. And I can think of all of the years of college and travel and all of the memories that go with it. Isn't it dumb how something like this just cues memories and not a lot of times it's not a thing it can be a smell or a song we went to beauty and the beast last night at summit high school first song they sang i'm weeping <laughs> my daughter mindy who was the cheerleader got to go to nationals she cheered for bend they won state got to go to nationals it's in los angeles we go to disneyland while we're there and i have this vivid memory of our little, our youngest daughter who went with us, she was, I think, three at the time, she just sitting by a table. She's not even in a chair. She's sitting on the floor, just fixed on a dancing teapot and, and candelabra and the songs. And I'll tell you what, the world could have blown up around her and she wouldn't have known it. So I've, it's amazing how smells take you back. Music takes you back. This wasn't the one I wanted to share with you this morning because I think the, I know a lot of you guys have boys. I have four daughters. So I've had a mother, two sisters, a wife of 42 years almost, and four daughters. I am so well domesticated, it's disgusting. <laughs> but this wasn't the one I wanted to bring. I think the one I wanted to bring was one that was... Um, that we've actually given to our daughter. Do you remember those ugly little creatures called Cabbage Patch Dolls? <laughs> How did that thing ever get so popular? Well, one Easter, we had two Cabbage Patch Dolls and a Care Bear. And I tied strings around the waist of each one and hid them in the house. And those strings, I threaded all through the house, rove it under, through the cabinets, under the furniture, and, all, and hung... A, hung the end of it in front of my, each of my daughter's doors with their name on it. It was an Easter morning. And they came out and they're wondering, Dad, what is this? I said, just follow the string. You'll find it. And four... Told you. <laughs> For the better part of an hour, our home was filled with the giggles of little girls. And one morning, years and years later, our third daughter was sitting at the table uh, having some cereal. And for whatever reason, I had that ugly little doll out. And I said, 
Renee, do you remember? And that's as much of the question as I got out. She didn't even look up. She goes, that was the best. And it, somewhere, wherever that doll is, it's kind of a double remember when for us because the doll itself was, and then the clothing had long since disappeared. Did you know that little girls can be as tough on dolls as boys are on Tonka trucks? I, I, we had some Barbie dolls that had some funky haircuts, let me tell you. Well, that, the clothing for that doll had long since disappeared, and the onesie that it had on was the sleeper that we brought our youngest daughter home from the hospital in. So that one will stay in the family a long time. I guess my reasoning here is to tell you those kinds of memories, those kinds of memorabilia are unique to our own family. They don't mean a thing to you. And what you have wouldn't mean much to me. But it reminds me of Lost. Anybody, anybody here watch that series? And remember Kate in there? She didn't want the, the case with the guns and the money and all of that stuff. She wanted a little toy airplane because it reminded her of her high school love, her high school sweetheart. Now what does this have to do with this morning? The stones that Joshua set up were a memorial, a time to recap all the history, not just the wandering in the desert, but all of the history that they had been through from the point of captivity, 500 years of God saying, I am going to take you to the promised land. And this pile of stones says, we made it. We are here. Communion, a hunk of bread and a glass of wine. Some of us will have that with dinner tonight. But in this atmosphere, it has a completely different meaning. There is a passage that is very commonly read over communion. For I, this is Paul writing to the Corinthians. He said, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in, in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. There's a lot of mysticism that goes along with communion. There is a circle that says the bread becomes Christ's flesh and the wine becomes his blood. It actually gets changed in your body. There is a belief that somehow if I take communion, I'm holier for having done so. And that's not really true. Communion has been given to us as a reminder. Some think you have to do it every day. Pete came out of a, an atmosphere where they took communion every week. Already said it was kind of weird being at Antioch because we don't. 
We take communion as often as we want. But Christ said, whenever you do this, remember me. Remember what I have set up for you. I have made it possible for you to get to the promised land. And as the bread slips past your lips and you feel its texture on your tongue, whether it tastes like baklava or not, I want you to remember that my body was punished and broken for you so that you didn't have to take the punishment yourself. And when the wine just slips past your lips and the tannins hit your taste buds and it gives you that faint taste of blood, I want you to remember that my shed blood paid the price for you and you've been washed by that blood and now you have permission. In fact, you are going to be welcomed into the promised land. And in John he said, I am leaving so I can go prepare that place for you that have believed in me. That's what we're going to celebrate this morning. There's nothing magic here. It's a moment for each of us just to step away from the crush and the destruction and the trial and the abuse of the world and say, Lord, because of you, I am going home. Let's pray. Father, I do pray that this morning, well, a couple of things. There may be someone here that has never put their trust in you for whatever reason. Let this be the morning when they trust you for the rest of, e of their eternity. Thank you for the grace that you've shown us for the punishment that you took for us, for the blood that you shed. Let us celebrate that and remember the fact that we indeed are heading for the promised land. In Jesus' name, amen.